Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So whether you work for an online retailer or you just enjoy internet shopping, you've probably noticed that this year the holidays are starting way too early. I swear, I think in a couple of years, it's going to start in August. We're going to start seeing the winter holiday ads in August. Just wait. I remember 15 years ago, it was uncommon for there to even be sales on Thanksgiving Day online. It was just, you know, the day after Thanksgiving online. And then I remember when I found out I had to work all day on Thanksgiving, well, the day before that. Uh, and obviously, this is Thanksgiving in the US. I know there are other starting points for holiday shopping in other parts of the world. But then for several years, it was really November 11th in a lot of parts of the world because. In the US, there's Veterans Day. I know Canada has a holiday. I think there's some kind of a holiday in Europe. I didn't look it up. I'm sorry. And then there's Singles Day in China, which was kind of a made up holiday, sort of like Prime Day, uh, made up by Alibaba. And basically, everyone just gets themselves a present. <laughs> um, but that was all of those happened on November 11th. So I've kind of always, for the last several years, just kind of bookmarked November 11th as the day that I don't bother my friends that work in retail again for you know another month or so. Uh, I might hear from them once in a while, but I'm not going to bug them. But this year, it seems like right after Halloween, we started to see Black Friday sales. And I'm like, um, first of all, it's a Tuesday. Second of all, it's the beginning of November. <laughs> So the reason I bring that up is because whenever there are sales or marketing on new items, fraudsters are paying attention to. And what they're especially paying attention to is what products are the most popular. What are going to be the products that people will want to buy each other or themselves this year around the holidays? Because they want to get their hands on them too. They want to be able to buy them with stolen credit cards or with stacking promos or there's so many different methods. And then... They want to be able to sell them at a cheaper rate. Oftentimes it's below cost for retailers that are wholesalers essentially and buying from other companies. And they're looking at small household appliances. They're looking at clothing items, name brands, the most popular toys, all of those things that people are going to be searching for often on secondary markets for a cheaper price. And especially as the economy continues to stay rather stagnant, I know that at least in the US, inflation is down, but prices of things have stayed up. Consumers are going to want to deal and they're going to want to deal from retailers, but they'll also be looking on secondary markets. And that's why we have to be aware of the different types of fraud trends that we see during the holidays. And that's really what I'm going to talk about today, especially two specific trends that are becoming more clear every day. And I only know a little bit, but enough to try to get the word out uh, so that if you start seeing something similar to these activity that you know what you're looking at 
and hopefully you'll be able to respond to it faster. So a tiny bit of a history lesson, not really, but just a little bit as far as the holidays. I mean, I remember when it used to be that we didn't really get a lot of fraud. It was kind of the same amount of fraud. And what we used to say uh, within retail, when people would ask, oh, the holidays, I bet it's a lot. And well, yeah, absolutely. If you're in retail, you probably haven't had a great Thanksgiving in the US or even a good Christmas for years. I know some of you who manage broad teams for retail often joke that you kiss your kids goodbye in November and see them in January. And I know that's not completely true, especially now that you can work from home, but uh, it, there's a lot of truth to that. But it up until the last few years, it wasn't because necessarily because there was more fraud. Now, certainly with some retailers, there would be more fraud than others. But Overall, it wasn't like we saw this steep percentage of fraud uh, within November and December. But really what it was, is it was kind of the same percentage of needles, but a much bigger haystack. And there were, you know, if you're using the analogy of a needle in the haystack and continuing on with that analogy and probably overdoing it a little bit when a lot of those pieces of hay look like needles because people are shipping items to a family member across country or doing things that historically looked pretty suspicious, then there would have to be a lot of reviews to determine are these legitimate or are these not. Now it's so common to ship to other addresses. It's not the same. It's just not the same. And I think that I've, that's come across so well to those of you who have been listening to the podcast uh, pretty religiously over the last year and a half. Fraud is changing at a pace that I haven't seen before. And it's quite scary in some ways, especially uh, the second trend that I'm going to share with you guys. It just, I don't even know how to talk about it without sounding like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, but it's the world we live in now. Technology is evolving so quickly that we're seeing new fraud trends just evolve in the last couple of months. And I'm doing my best to keep up on that. But at the same time, there's only so much that can be shared on a public platform, which is why I'm excited. One of the many reasons why I'm excited to have the Fraudology membership uh, group starting in the new year, um, hopefully within January at some point, because we'll be able to talk more freely with each other uh, within a private setting. And uh, then also, you know, have the podcast as well, because it's still great to be able to cross pollinate information as much as possible. So over the last few years, the most popular fraud trends and fraud methods that retailers have seen have definitely been, you know, triangulation, talked about that a fair amount last year. Essentially, what it is, is Someone makes a posting on a secondary marketplace for a popular item. They don't necessarily have it in their possession. This is a cyber criminal doing this, but they post it. They post, uh, you know, the item for sale on a secondary market at a pretty steep discount. Somebody buys that from them and pays them through the secondary marketplace. That person then uses a stolen credit card, not the person who ordered it, but someone else another victim, they use their stolen credit card to make a purchase at a retailer for the item that that person ordered from them on the secondary marketplace. So they're making a purchase on a stolen credit card shipping to this person who ordered it on the marketplace. This happens way too often. Sometimes it happens on uh, kind of some sketchy websites, websites that have been put up uh, very recently that often have stolen pictures from reputable websites. Uh, but thankfully, a lot of those have been taken down due to copyright laws as far as the pictures and uh, the the font and all of that. So that's you know helpful. And there are some uh, there are some 
technologies out there that allow merchants to essentially scrape the web to find these websites and take them down. So they've migrated a lot more to secondary marketplaces. And that's not really up to the secondary marketplace to police. I mean, it's not that I'm being an apologist for them, but everybody has to worry about the type of fraud that they get and how they're defrauded. Marketplaces are often defrauded by fraudulent sellers who say that they're going to, you know, ship something that they don't or, you know, all different types of things, or maybe somebody buying something with a stolen credit card. So that's what they're focused on. But especially when it's an item that can be purchased at multiple companies, there's no way to know, oh, this item was stolen. Uh, I am grateful and so happy that I was able to connect so many uh, retailers to a couple of the largest secondary marketplaces last year uh, when we had the master manipulator attack. And I know that that has been helpful, but it only works so many times. Like I said, if you know you have your own brand of items, then you can say, hey, that item is being sold for less than cost with new with tags with free shipping. That's probably fraud. But if it's an item that can be purchased at 17 different retailers and your own website, it's hard to know where that came from and who was defrauded and whose merchandise that really is. So there's only so much you can do, but at least uh, they're connected with each other and reporting things. And that is merchant collaboration in action. And I get so nerdy about it. I'm rolling my eyes at myself. So you don't have to. (laughs) In addition to triangulation, there are just so many bots being seen. I've talked about this over the last few episodes, especially the ones that are completely bypassing the cybersecurity bot mitigation tools and going straight to purchasing bots. And now your fraud mitigation tool is trying to detect these. And it'd be much better if you detected them further up in the session. But, you know, with traditional tools and legacy tools right now, you've got to look at them at checkout and try to determine if they're purchasing bots or not. And it's a challenge. But I know that there are workarounds and there are some solutions that are working for people. And, you know, that will just continue. And then the other one that kind of stays the same usually is reshipping. And reshipping is something that has been around for like 15 years, at least. I remember it, gosh, probably even more than that can't even think of when I didn't know about reshipping. And essentially what that is, is because a lot of companies in the US or in Europe or other you know, Western countries have often have lists of countries that they won't ship to, usually because there's been fraud or there's customs issues or there's sanctions. And so because of that, those cyber criminals within those countries need to find another place to ship the items that they want to get and that they want to then fence for money or they want to get sent back to their countries. So one of the oldest ways in the book is to advertise a work from home scheme. And especially after COVID, working from home is, you know, a lot more common that people don't really question it as much. And so there's a lot of people that have been laid off and they see an ad where they can just uh, repackage boxes and send them off to another country and they'll, you know, be paid $50 a box or whatever it is. And it seems like good money and they don't really ask a lot of questions. Uh, the challenge is that they usually don't get paid uh, and they're always you know, shipping stolen merchandise. So if one of those companies has an investigative department, which you all know I'm such a big proponent on, and that's why I've had Eric Bowles on the podcast a couple of times now, because I just think that they're so important to have. And some of the biggest retailers have them and have 
found so much value in them. So I wish that every other company would too, but I can only do so much uh, in trying to you know, convince that. And honestly, I know I'm not convincing you guys. I know that you're already convinced it's you know higher up the chain to convince and I, I get it. But um, in this case, those investigators can then reach out to law enforcement to say, hey, can you go to this address and retrieve these items? And there's been several cases, especially with the larger retailers that have these investigative departments, or you know, maybe it's the organized crime department uh, within their retail store side that can sometimes cross over into web or whatever it is, where they find these houses that just have tons and tons of items. And there's been more than a few times where a merchant will reach out to me um, as an investigator and will say, hey, so we raided this house, this reshipping house with law enforcement, and we found all of these particular brand of shoes or this particular brand of electronics. Can you get me in touch with somebody that works at that company? Because we just want to help the law enforcement return these 50, you know, tablets or, you know, cell phones or whatever it is. So that happens. It doesn't happen as much as items are lost by any means, but it always feels like a little bit of a win when it does. But oftentimes these people can then face jail time because they were accepting packages at their address and shipping them off internationally to China, to Russia, to, you know, all kinds of places in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia. And, you know, they don't think they're doing anything wrong, more or less. They might think it's a little shady, but you know, they're expecting a pretty decent payday. And then when they realize it's not coming, that's when they stop doing it. And then oftentimes there's this pileup of goods and they're not going to send it back to the company. So anyway, they also risk having their address marked as fraud in systems and so many other issues. So because this has been happening for so long, I honestly was, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit when someone told me that Brian Krebs wrote an article about a reshipping service recently. And it is, some of the stuff is a review more or less, right? Things that we've heard before, but there's actually a very large drop service uh, or reshipping service that was recently uh, hacked or shut down recently that has caused a lot of issues. It actually currently employs more than 1200 people across the US who are knowingly or unwittingly involved in reshipping expensive consumer goods purchased with stolen credit cards. So I'm going to read a bit of this uh, article because it's I think you guys will find it interesting. There are definitely some specific things that if you are a retailer, you're going to want to look this up, um, but I can at least uh, provide a little bit of information. So this is one of the trends that I wanted to highlight as we go into the holidays that reshipping is alive and well. And if you are kind of a veteran fraud fighter like I am, you might kind of think, oh yeah, okay. But it's still very active. So we need to be aware that it is possible. And, you know, because they're shipping to residential addresses, they're not shipping to warehouses. It's intentional, right? They know a lot of retailers aren't going to ship to warehouses for professional freight forwarders because once those items are international, they can't guarantee them. And it's also often tied towards to fraud. But if it's going to a residential address, it's going to look more like, oh, this person is just shipping it to their niece, or you know, it's probably a family member or a really good friend. And it can be really tricky to just decipher the orders where it's a stolen credit card shipping to a reshipping mule. And, or it's, you know, that person's credit card who's placing the order and they're shipping to a family member with a different last name. It can be very challenging to identify these. And that's why they work. That's why they go through so many elaborate networks and systems and all of these 
efforts to create this infrastructure to be able to get goods overseas. And I think the other thing that's important to note is this particular uh, service that was hacked. And this is according to them, but it's one of the largest drop services I've heard of in a long time. And they're shipping to Russia. Right now, there are a lot of sanctions on Russia from the U.S., Companies are not supposed to be shipping any items to Russia. So even if, I mean, in this case, it's unknowingly, but it's still, that's why this is so important to them. That's why they're putting so much effort into this because they want and probably need a lot of items and they're not able to get them legitimately. It's not okay that they're stealing, you know, our credit cards or, you know, any innocent civilians credit cards whether it's in any country uh to steal these items to get to them but it also makes sense so that's why i wanted to point that out so uh reading a little bit of the article among the most common ways that thieves extract cash from stolen credit card accounts i mean we all know this but i'll still it's good review is through purchasing pricey consumer goods online and reselling them on the black market or reselling them on secondary marketplaces that aren't the black market i'm adding that part most online retailers grew wise to these scams years ago and stopped shipping to regions of the world most frequently associated with credit card fraud, including Eastern Europe, North Africa, and Russia. I would also add parts of Southeast Asia. But such restrictions have created a burgeoning underground market for reshipping scams, which rely on willing or unwitting residents in the US and Europe to receive stolen goods and relay them to crooks living in embargoed areas. So this particular uh, reshipping service was called SWAT USA Drop Service. And they're often known as drops for stuff, which is very much what that is. Uh, you know, drop addresses are often, you know, what you would call an address where you're sending stolen goods. So they just kind of shortened it to drops. Um, and in this case, the drops are people who have responded to work from home package reshipping jobs, advertised on Craigslist and job search sites. Most reshipping scams promise employees a monthly salary and even cash bonuses. In reality, the crooks in charge almost always stop communicating with drops just before the first payday, usually about a month after the drop ships their first package. The packages arrive with prepaid shipping labels that are paid for with stolen credit card numbers or with hijacked online accounts at FedEx and USPS. Drops are responsible for inspecting and verifying the contents of the shipments, attaching the correct shipping label to each package, and sending them off via the appropriate shipping company. SWAT takes a percentage cut up to 50% where stuffers, thieves armed with stolen credit card numbers, pay a portion of each product's retail value to SWAT as the reshipping fee. The stuffers use stolen cards to purchase high-value products from merchants and have the merchant ship the items to the drops addresses. Once the drops receive and successfully reship the stolen packages, the stuffers then sell the products on the local black market. So what he means by local black market is often all different types of marketplaces uh, in those countries. And so that can very much vary from online marketplaces like we know all the way to in street markets. The SWAT drop service has been around in various names and under different ownership for almost a decade. But in early to October 2023, SWAT's current co-owner, a Russian-speaking individual who uses the handle Fearless with two L's, took to his favorite cybercrime forum to lodge a formal complaint against the owner of a competitive or a competitor's reshipping service, alleging that his rival had hacked SWAT and was trying to poach his stuffers and reshippers by emailing them directly. So I think in this ca case, when he said 
they were hacked. I think that means account takeover that someone logged into their accounts. So there was a security firm called Hold Security that shared screenshots uh, of a SWAT stuffers user panel. So being able to see like who uh, are getting the drops. And so in this case, Brian Krebs reached out to one of the reshippers um, who is going by the name Kareem, a young man from Maryland, because he was listed as an active drop. When Brian Krebs contacted him, Kareem agreed to speak on condition that his full name not be used in the story. Okay, this part's kind of interesting. So Kareem said he'd been hired via an online job board to reship packages on behalf of a company calling itself CTSI and that he's been receiving and reshipping iPads and Apple Watches for several weeks now. Kareem was less than thrilled to learn he would probably not be getting his salary on the promised payday, which was coming up in a few days. Kareem said he was instructed to create an account at a website, uh, and I'm not going to name the website, but it is all in this article, which will be in the show notes, where each day he was expected to log in and check for new messages about pending shipments. Anyone can sign up at this website as a potential reshipping mule, although doing so requires applicants to share a great deal of personal and financial information, as well as copies of an ID or a passport matching the supplied name. So yes, you could go in here and, you know, act like you're going to be a reshipper, but you have to give a lot of your information. And I would say that, you know, don't be surprised if your identity is stolen at some point after that. But they show screenshots of this website. And while it's pretty rudimentary, it shows all the different companies that this person should be expecting packages from. And then they can click on that and know what it is and then where to ship it and, you know, where to download the the shipping labels and all of those things. So then they went into a little bit more um, security side where they looked at the homepage and then looked at how many other websites are using the same code within the homepage. And they found more than four dozen other websites running the same login panel. So doing the same thing, basically. And uh, then he listed all of those four dozen websites that are allowing reshipping. I don't know if it makes sense for a retailer to go in and look at these because it's not necessarily going to show you anything, you know, to help you get your packages back or to be able to identify the dropshipper's address or anything like that. But I do think it's important to understand kind of the entire ecosystem and really the life cycle of this and you know, the entire, how it all works together and how it fits. Kind of similar to when Ayala at Bigger Eleven was on the podcast um, several months ago, and she said it was important for you to know and understand the your company's place in the scam life cycle. I think it's important for you to understand the life cycle of reshipping or the life cycle of triangulation and how that fits your company, because then you can kind of reverse engineer backwards to be able to help your manual reviewers or be able to feed your models or work with your solution providers to be able to identify these orders. What is going to make this look a little bit different than a legitimate order? If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but SPEC's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. SPEC lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of SPEC's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. 
or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So uh, the reason why there's so many websites is because in practice, uh, all mules that are used are cut loose within approximately 30 days of their first shipment just before the promised paycheck is due. So they're getting free labor out of this. Uh, they're not just you know, defrauding the companies. They're also defrauding the people who are excited and think that they have a job now and you know believe this and then actually get duped into committing fraud and in some cases, going against the law, the sanctions laws and all of that and shipping items to countries where you're not supposed to. I don't know if that can fall back on them, but it's certainly, you know, it's just important to know there's more than one victim in this scam. Also with this distributed setup, even if one reshipping operation gets shut down or exposed online, the rest can keep on pumping out dozens of packages a day. Uh, in 2015, there was an academic study on criminal reshipping services, and they found that the average financial hit from a reshipping scheme per cardholder was around $1,100. I'd say that's probably more now. Uh, but the study looked into the financial operations of several reshipping schemes and estimated that approximately 1.6 million credit and debit cards are used to commit at least $1.8 billion in reshipping fraud each year. That was eight years ago. So it's not hard to see how this can be profitable for anyone who has stolen cards, right? So for example, a stuffer or a carter, somebody who's using the stolen cards, buys a stolen payment card off the black market for $10 and can use that card to purchase more than a you know, $1,100 worth of goods. So they're stealing $1,100 from the credit card of the victim. After the reshipping service takes its cut, which would be around $550, and the stuffer pays for his reshipping label around $100, the stuffer receives the stolen goods and sells them on the black market in Russia for $1,400. He's just turned a $10 investment into more than $700. And then he just rinses, washes, and repeats. But the breach at SWAT exposed not only the nicknames and contact information for all of its stuffers and drops, but also the group's monthly earnings and payouts. SWAT apparently kept its books in a publicly accessible Google Sheets document, and that document reveals Fearless and his business partner each routinely made more than $100,000 each month operating their various reshipping businesses. So the guys at the top get paid the most, and... The people who are actually shipping these items to other countries are not getting paid at all. Uh, the exposed SWAT financial records show this crime group has tens of thousands of dollars worth of expenses each month, including payments for the following recurring costs. So I'm sharing this because I just think it's fascinating and I think you will too. So some of their business expenses in quotation marks are advertising the service on crime forums and via spam. The people hired to reroute packages usually by voice over the phone. So the people who are hiring you know, the people to reroute, they have to pay them. So the recruiters, I guess, third party services that sell hacked, stolen UPS and FedEx labels, drops, test services, contractors who will test the honesty of drops by sending them fake jewelry, documents, etc. Sending drops to physically pick up legal documents for a phony front companies. So they want to make sure that the drops are going to be trustworthy to actually send the items to them. So they'll uh, do test services. And so that's an expense for them. The spreadsheet also included the cryptocurrency account numbers that were to be credited each month with SWAT's earnings. Unsurprisingly, a review of the blockchain activity tied to the Bitcoin addresses listed in that document shows that many of them have a deep association with cybercrime and including ransomware activity and transactions at darknet sites that peddle stolen credit cards and residential proxy services. All things that we know are favorite methods of cybercrime, 
of the criminals in Russia. Uh, so the information linked from this uh, site also exposed the real life identity and financial dealings of its principal own owner, which he says that we'll be hearing more about Fearless in part two of the story. So stay tuned. Um, like I said, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. I did not read the entire article, but I did read the parts that I thought that you might find interesting. It is fascinating to understand kind of how these enterprises work. And while I mean, I've had kind of a general idea, I honestly thought that reshipping to Russia was kind of old news. And I am embarrassed to say that, but it, apparently it still is working just fine. It's not something that we've been able to eradicate. And especially as there are you know longer times of sanctions, there's going to be more pressure for goods from other countries to come into their country to be sold on the black market. So that is one of the big trends I want you to be on the lookout for, especially if you're in retail. And if you're on the issuing side, right, knowing about this, knowing about the type of fraud that there is, it can be really helpful. If you know, a cardholder calls and says my card was stolen, but they won't tell me where it was shipped. Well, it could have been a reshipper. There's a lot of different options there. Okay, I've put this off long enough. I am worried I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but you guys are just going to have to trust me a lot that I have been holding on to this information for several weeks now and putting a lot of pieces together. And so when I have an educated guess about something, it's not unfounded. It's because there's proof, but I don't feel comfortable sharing all of the identifiers and the ways that we know that these things are connected uh, on this public platform. So that is my disclosure for this next part. And it's separate from reshipping. There may be a reshipping component, but this is completely different. So if you did not listen to the episode with Nate Carl back in September, where he talked about how third-party fraud tools are being attacked, I highly recommend that you do so after this episode. There are a lot of things in that episode that he talked about that are now coming true in a pretty big way to a lot of large companies. And you know what always happens with new fraud trends is that the biggest companies get hit first. They try to find a way to circumvent that vulnerability as fast as they can. And then it trickles down to smaller companies, especially any company that is selling the most popular items during the holidays. So it could be a really small company that, you know, sells an Apple watch, for example, they could be a really big target for a sophisticated fraud attack. They don't, you know, fraudsters don't really care where they're buying items from. They just care what items they're getting. And they often know that the smaller the company, the less defenses they're going to have, the less resources they're going to have, the less they're going to understand what they're doing when they look at an order. They can't just go, oh, that's triangulation or, oh, that looks like reshipping fraud. Here's how we identify it. I mean, some can, but it's just not as common. But remember last year when my good friend Shoshana Marini joined me on the podcast to talk about the group that we dubbed the master manipulators? They were doing a lot of address manipulation and triangulation fraud, as well as reshipping fraud to Southeast Asia. And we had a lot of indicators that the way that they were able to scale was through utilizing people who were victims of human trafficking. And this was really hard to discuss. It felt like a whole new low of financial fraud that we had seen. And it hit 
dozens of retailers all at once. And kind of the pattern that we saw last year was in October or so, there were a couple of lead companies that reached out to me and said, hey, is anyone else seeing XYZ? And in last year's case, it was a lot of address manipulation to get around the way that a lot of fraud tools uh, look for similar accounts, right? So if the address is 123 Main Street, and then the next order is 123A Main Street, even if 123 Main Street was marked as fraud, 123A Main Street wouldn't, it would be used as a whole new address. And that's oversimplifying it, but just kind of as a reminder. So that was what everyone was dealing with. It came in a few like fits and starts in October where in hindsight, it was clear that they were testing it, right? They were seeing if this would work. They were practicing their skills uh, on a few specific websites as well as, you know, several others. Uh, Some websites didn't catch it until, you know, later in November, but it seemed like, oh, yep, uh uh-huh. Those chargebacks were tests and we can see where they were trying to figure out if what they were doing would work. And if it did, then they would just go full force starting Cyber Week and especially on Black Friday. Uh, in last year's case, they even uh, were able to DDoS attack a couple of solution providers that are used for verification purposes of names, emails, addresses, etc. Knowing that so many online retailers rely on those two companies and they were able to take it down for one of them, especially for several hours. And this was public information. It was, we, you know, when you know where to look, you can find outages of various sites and services. So while that information first came to me on the down low, it was quickly able to be verified publicly. So that's what happened last year. And then it calmed down. And throughout this year, and I think I even said it in July when Frank McKenna and Marianne Miller stopped by to talk about our predictions for this year. I said, they've been really quiet and I'm worried about that. I don't know what they're going to come up with next year, but I'm worried. Well, now we kind of know what they're going to come up with and guys, it's a lot worse. So I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but I also at the same time, want to, you know, provide accurate weather, so to speak. And this is going to be a little stormy, but if you know what to expect, it can at least help you be ahead of the curve to be able to be reactive if this starts happening on your website. So interestingly enough, over the last several weeks, some of the same companies that contacted me last October and early November have been contacting me again with all new schemes that they're seeing. And these are things that we didn't even know were possible. And it's kind of a mixture between things that engineering can fix and identify and things that the fraud team can fix and identify. And so it makes it even more sophisticated because it's kind of half on the hacking side, not the account takeover version of hacking, but actual hacking, and then half in the manipulation and the financial fraud side. So what they're seeing is it comes in swarms for three to four days and then dies down. So this is the testing period. This is that we need to figure out their vulnerabilities, figure out where we can hit them and how, and then we'll come back later. Like I said, there it is technical in nature in some ways. So you're gonna, you know, need to reach out to your engineering department and get them involved. It would not hurt. And I'll share this, you know, towards the end as far as what you can do now. 
but it would not hurt for you to set up a meeting with your engineering department to give them a heads up that other companies are seeing these types of attacks. So what's happening, and this is where I feel like it just sounds like I'm in a sci-fi movie, but uh, I am lucky to know literally the smartest people in the world on these subjects who have explained this to me in a way that I can then share with you. And really what's happening is AI bots. There are now bots that are able to adapt and really be run by artificial intelligence. They're no longer being just scripted to say, do this and this and this and this. They're being directed through various tools and technology to basically swarm a system, a retailer system, and find all the vulnerabilities they can. And while some of those vulnerabilities are similar from retailer to retailer, others are not. And they're finding them pretty quickly and then hitting them really hard for a couple days and then stopping. My concern and my worry is that in a couple weeks, they're not going to stop. They're going to come back with full force and with a vengeance. So if you've had something like this happen to you already, I'd say you have about a week and a half or two weeks to try to put something in place with your engineering department, whether it's, you know, changing the timing of responses or other things like that to be able to patch up these gaps. So the technical terms of these, and again, I'm not super technical, you know, when it comes to the cybersecurity side, but There are two different types of attacks that are happening most often against retailers. One is session attack and the other is race condition attacks. So they're really attacking the gaps between APIs um, and sometimes kind of some small errors that maybe your developers did when they were connecting your product to your fraud tool or to the API that really seemed inconsequential and just didn't really matter then that now, unfortunately, are, you know, being identified by AI and being able to go, oh, okay, so they pause when they you know provide this information, or there's a gap in how this is sent to these guys, or there's a leakage of data here, because we can kind of get in between the almost the phone lines of the API and leak that information. There's so many different ways it's happening. But I think it's most important to tell you that it is happening. And like I said, a lot of these are targeting the vendor integration directly. And in some cases, they are able to identify, okay, well, you know, this group of retailers use vendor C. This is how we can attack them because we know how the integration was done and we know how that system works. And so we have kind of a a knowing script that's already forming based on a couple of different solution providers that these groups are identifying, oh, okay, if they use this solution provider or that solution provider, this is how we can attack them. There might be some variations of the attack or what they need to do based on the merchant's own internal tech stack, but they're going to be similar in nature. And remember, I know that uh, I talked about this in a rebuttal uh, episode a few months ago or so. And it was around this topic because there were a couple of people that got a little fired up about uh, the conversations we were having about uh, the ability to, you know, how fraudsters are able to attack third party fraud systems. Um, Probably no big surprise, the people that got upset work for third party fraud systems, some of them being the ones that are being attacked. Um, But one of the things I think it's important to know is we used to be able to have quite a bit of comfort in the fact that 
uh, cyber criminals wouldn't know the type of solution that you're using. They wouldn't know the specific solution you're using. They wouldn't be able to tie together multiple companies that are all using the same solution. We kind of got comfortable in that. But over the last several years, that's no longer something that we can have faith in. In fact, we need to be very aware that anyone and everyone can know what fraud solution you use and who else uses it. And it's not because of the vendor's website or anything like that. It's because of GDPR, because it's now required in terms of service to disclose every company that you're providing user information to, which includes solution providers, either core case management systems or verification tools, identity document verification tools, all of the ones that you're using. The other way is through developer tools. It's fairly easy. I mean, not not for me, and I'll admit that, but I have seen these in action. To be able to expose, even within just the URL, but oftentimes using developer tools to be able to see where communication is going, you can be able to see which APIs are being called up and where the data is going from there in the flow, right? So when you press checkout, you can see, okay, it goes to this one, this one, this one, that one, or within account signup or, you know, whatever that action is. So I just wanted to make sure that that was clear that we just have to assume that these groups know exactly who you use. And because of that, they have a fairly good idea of the vulnerabilities that probably exist between the integration of your vendor and your system. That is not always the fault of the vendor. In fact, in most cases, it's not only the fault of the vendor, but there are some cases where, you know, solutions that worked five, six, seven years ago and worked really, really well in the way that they collected data and the way that they assessed data and different data points and were able to, you know, assess and analyze risk, they're just not as effective anymore. And these guys are taking advantage of that. I just, they don't know how else to say it. I know it's going to tick some people off, but you know, our industry is not the same as anything else in the software as a service market. We need to continually be innovating because there is another adversary out there that's trying to attack it constantly. And so you can't just create something and refine it until it's, you know, in a really good place and then set it and forget it for 5, 10, 15 years. It just doesn't work that way. And I know it's hard to explain to senior leadership when you have to, you know, upgrade your tools. I really wish that most solution providers would upgrade them themselves, but that's not always the case. In fact, that often hasn't been. And that is a whole other lesson on that's a whole other cause around VC funding and all kinds of stuff that I'm just not getting into today. But back to, you know, these attacks, right? So the session attacks and the race condition attacks. So Nate talked quite a bit about session attacks as well as anti-detect and JavaScript blockers in the previous episode. So I'm not going to try to regurgitate all of that. I just, I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. So if you did not listen to that one, I just, I highly recommend it. Um, but as far as race condition attacks, this is a term that I wasn't familiar with. So I asked uh, someone who knows this stuff very well to try to describe it to me in terms that we understand and within fraud, because race condition attacks are actually a term within cybersecurity, but this is attacking the financial fraud piece. Um, it's not always payment fraud, by the way, that's happening, but a lot of it has to do with that. So uh, here's one example. Oh, 
actually first the uh, kind of the definition. So race condition attacks are when two requests are sent at the same time that shouldn't be, and that can confuse a system and cause it to behave in ways it shouldn't. And this is what's happening to most of the merchants who have contacted me. Something similar to this example. If two payment requests come in at the same time with the same session ID, they'll both go to a risk vendor for processing. Whichever request gets in first, in quotation marks, will get evaluated and returned. The second request is considered a duplicate because it's the same session ID, and the risk assessment from the first payment is returned even though data in each payment is actually different. So saying this in a little bit of a different way, and there are definitely variations of this, but it seems like the most common attack that I'm hearing about, and this is just from the retailers that reach out to me and provide the in you know offer this information, is something like this. So Fraudster has two screens open and on one of them they're filling out for checkout and they fill out all the forms manually and then on the other screen and these are the same session IDs somehow they're able to you know hack that so that it looks like oh it's the same same person same session on our website they're filling out uh, update payment information for example if they have payment one that is a card that may not ever have um, chargebacks associated with it because of its bin. So for instance, it's a prepaid bin. There are several fraud solutions that I didn't necessarily know this, but it makes sense, have been set up to just automatically accept these prepaid cards and because there aren't chargebacks associated. Whether that, you know, especially in cases where the fraud provider is providing a chargeback guarantee, this is a good way for them to inflate their acceptance rate by saying, oh, it's not fraud because there won't be a chargeback, so we'll just accept it. And on face value, that makes sense. But that is being taken advantage of now. That is being exploited. Because through these AI bots, fraudsters have figured out that in some cases, depending on how the merchant's risk stack is set up and who their providers are, that if they start out with a payment method when they hit checkout, they start out with a payment method that will be automatically accepted. And oftentimes no other parts of the order will even be looked at because, oh, no chargeback means pass. Well, at the exact same time or within milliseconds, they are pressing update card. And that card that they're updating and changing is a stolen credit card. And so the risk vendor gets the first order, sees, oh, the bin can't get chargebacks. We're going to auto pass. And then at the exact same time, what comes back to the merchant to go and take to the payment processor, especially in a pre-authorization setting, take to the payment processor is the stolen card. And so that's the one that's actually being used. It's honestly pretty genius. And I have been not sharing that for quite a while because at first there was just one or two merchants that told me about it and I didn't want to, you know, out them to their providers or anything else, right? I just wanted to keep it fairly insulated. Also, I didn't know how common it was. Maybe it's just hitting these two companies, but now there's several different companies that are getting variations of this, of these session attacks, of these race conditions where there are two different sessions happening at the exact same time and they're two different actions. And so the system gets overloaded and does something that it's not supposed to. And in some cases, these attacks have resulted in millions of dollars of losses in just a few days because, you know, it, your system thinks that it's normal. Your system thinks it's okay. And now you've shipped off all these products, oftentimes to reshipping addresses, and they're gone. 
this is happening in digital goods as well with gift cards and other things like that. But um, it's something to be aware of. And it's going to look to you like something very odd. It's just going to be like, how is this happening? What is happening? Um, there are other forms of this that are pretty scary. In some cases, the AI bots have identified that payment pages or different actions within a company's website will leak data. Um, I was trying to figure out how to make this example not seem so specific, but some of the data that has been leaking and being exposed to these bad actors are about products or product availability um, or other pieces of information that you would never want, you know, cyber criminals to learn. In one example, uh, think of a company that is renting items, whether it's a house rental or a car rental, or, you know, right now you can really rent anything, right? You can rent cameras, you can rent purses, you can rent dresses. Uh, so think about how valuable the information would be if a cyber criminal was able to identify when a product was available, like when it was being returned, when it would be available. And what if they were to have a secret shopper show up at the time the rentals being returned by the legitimate customer. And they were to just, you know, innocently and confidently, you know, say, Hey, I'm here to, as a secret shopper, I'm here to clean the property or I'm here to test drive that car. So, uh, what is the, what is the code? Or, you know, the owner asked me to do X, Y, Z, uh, just go ahead and hand me the keys. Don't put it, you know, in the secret spot, whatever that is. And then, property is stolen. If it's a car, the car is stolen. If it's a house, items in the house are stolen. It's absolutely, and then reshipped. It's absolutely insane. Uh, but that is happening now. There are other types of data leakage that are happening on specific types of sites that are just really mind-blowing and that I don't fully even understand. I mean, these are a few of them that I can provide, but it just blows my mind how this is working. And really, it's that intersection of people with coding and hacking skills and people with understanding payment fraud and behavior and being able to force those systems too. Uh, they're also doing it at the account level too. I'm focusing primarily on payment fraud because the holidays are coming up, but um, you know, just wanted to clarify that, that it's also happening at the account level, um, not just payment side. So as I mentioned, I have a, several reasons to believe that this is a similar, if not the same organization or larger organization all working together as we saw last year. And I'm not going to be able to provide all of the reasons, but I can tell you that there are a lot of tiny pieces of data and information that have been shared with me that really line up to last year. Uh, not just the fact that the same merchants are the first ones reaching out and going, uh-oh, there's something new this year. And it's a lot more sophisticated than last year. And we didn't think that was possible. So I just, you know, there's a couple things uh, that I will share, right? So again, just kind of to recap, you know, these three to four day swarm attacks are warm ups and practices, uh, since each system and attack has to be a little bit different. It has to be customized to the company. I have strong reason to believe in my fraud gut, as I say, uh, that Black Friday is going to be hit hard. That's going to be game on for them. Black Friday through Cyber Monday, because you have so much traffic going through your website, that it's really, really hard to identify anomalies when so much traffic is going through all 
already so much legitimate traffic and there is a pressure and a rush to approve as many and all orders as absolutely possible uh, to not impact any legitimate customers. And so it's really high stakes. For physical goods, some of them will be shipped, you know, through triangulation fraud. Others will be reshipping fraud, um, often to one of four specific states. Um, I'm not going to list them here, but uh, if you are a retailer, you probably have a pretty good idea of what those are. Uh, there are just some states within the U.S. that are more common for reshipping fraud than others. Um, there's probably about eight or nine, but there are four that seem to be most common uh, with these schemes. Um, and although, um, but, you know, more mules are being recruited via work from home scams for the holidays. So they could be in other states too. Um, this particular scam seems to be tied more to Southeast Asia and they seem to have their own internal network of reshipping mules. That may not be consistent, but that's at least what it seemed like last year. There were some reoccurring addresses that were just continually manipulated to look like they were the same or they were different addresses, but they were down the street or they had different apartment numbers or you know different types of manipulations, all different names of people, but the core address was recognizable enough to the delivery carrier. And that was really their goal is to have it look like a whole new order, a whole new brand new customer to the merchant, you know, doesn't look risky at all. Go ahead and go through it. We don't see it being connected to any existing accounts or orders that looked fraudulent before. Pass it through, but then have it, you know, look recognizable to the delivery carrier so they can deliver it to the right address, the right address for the cyber criminal, the wrong address for any merchant. So I think it's good to know that the first reshipping scam that I talked about is probably separate MO from this one. Um, they're similar but different. So just knowing that, that you know, you've got very strong networks from Russia and Eastern Europe, and you have very strong networks from Southeast Asia, and they're going to have a little bit different patterns as far as how they attack you. Um, like I said, these are kind of half human and half bot attacks, and they're scalable. And I don't like to think about this, but I do think that one of the reasons why it's scalable is probably because of the human trafficking issues that we're seeing with all kinds of scams from pig butchering to, you know, this type of fraud and others. There's a lot of human trafficking going on in Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, there have been some really heartbreaking reports written about the conditions and uh, just what is happening to these people and how they're being forced to commit payment fraud or to scam people in Western countries. Uh, their passports are taken away. They're barely paid any money. It's really, really sad. But this is how uh, organized crime is able to scale cybercrime. And like I said, all of that is really, it's conjecture, but it it's educated guesses. So um, I don't like to ring the alarm bell or pull the fire alarm or whatever analogy we want to use unless you really have to. But there have been more than enough people reaching out to me. And I always know that for every one person that, or one company that reaches out to me, there's probably five, 10 or 20 that are experiencing it that didn't. They either don't know me or you know didn't think to reach out to me or whatever. So I always kind of think that too, where, okay, if one is seeing it, there's probably several others. Hmm, if six people or six different companies that are in different areas of retail are all seeing this and the attacks are very similar, but they're customized to their risk stack and, you know, their providers that they use and how they're implemented and how they're connected. 
then that's probably more than a pattern. And that's something that I should at least share with you guys. So, you know, it's a possibility. If this hasn't happened to you yet, or if you think it has talk to your engineering department, talk to them about session attacks and race condition attacks and have them look over the way that the, your solution provider, your risk solution provider was integrated into the system. Have them be on the lookout for irregular activity. They may have different tools that can identify session attacks or race condition attacks. So they should really be, you know, they may be on the front lines for this, but your team can also be on the lookout for very odd behavior and just big swarms of activity. I don't know how else to say it, but odd behavior, but you guys will know what I mean. Um, you know what your fraud looks like. You know what's normal for you, similar to what, you know, Gil talked about last week. If it looks abnormal, dive in and try to figure it out. And if there's several orders connected and you're like, ooh, this all looks bad, well, know that it's possible that this is what's happening. Reach out to your fraud vendors. Ask them if they're seeing anything. Do understand that not all of them are going to want to admit it, but this is a good time to, you know, kind of see which fraud vendors are going to tell you the truth or not, right? And fraud vendors, stop trying to seem like you're perfect. It's okay to say, you know what? There's been a vulnerability that's been identified. Here are the six things that you can tell your engineering team, or here, let's go through the way that you're integrated into our system and see if there are any leaks of data or if there's any vulnerabilities or gaps. How can we support you in this? Rather than just saying, oh, well, you're not sending us enough information or it's the way that your system was integrated. You guys didn't do it right. That isn't going to help anyone. That isn't being a team player. That isn't being productive and helpful. And solution providers, if you're hearing from multiple merchants that they're seeing very similar attacks, then it may be time for your engineering team to get together and say, what can we do on our side to be able to stop this from happening? Are there quick fixes? Are there long-term fixes? I mean, hopefully there's both, right? But you know, the way that a solution provider responds to problems is really important. And I've been pretty disappointed in a lot of them uh, over the years, and especially over the last year or so, uh, where there's just a lot of, well, it's your fault or your know, deflection. And it's just not productive. That's not stopping cybercrime. That's not helping your customers. That's just deflecting and trying to, you know, you're trying to look like the good guy, but it really has the opposite effect on you, especially as more and more of your customers are talking to each other and going, oh, you have this problem too? Well, what's the common denominator between our company and your company? Oh, the solution provider we use. And like I said, this isn't all the solution provider's fault, but you can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And that is what I would challenge you to do. It doesn't mean you have to admit fault, but you can say, hey, yep, this is starting to happen. This is what we recommend. This is how we can help and try to be part of the, the solution. That is all I have for today, guys. <laughs> I think that is more than enough. I am sorry, but also not sorry because I know it's important to share this information. I just, it reminds me of one of the retailers on uh, the regular retailer call that I host uh, biweekly uh, has been joking lately that uh, I need to be sending cocktails in the mail uh, before our calls because I just feel like I've had heads up, gloom and doom. Um, and it's not always me, right? There's other merchants who are sharing what they're seeing. And it can just, after some of these calls, it's like, oh man, are we ever going to get ahead? But 
that's how we're going to get ahead is by sharing information. And while we do just have the retailer call now and then a smaller one for travel and ticketing, uh, there will be more uh, vertical calls set up soon through the Fraudology membership community and so many other ways for you to get to speak with your fraud fighting peers if you are a practitioner in fraud. So, you know, if you work for an e-commerce company, a marketplace, a fintech, a B2C fintech, uh, or a bank, financial institution, etc. Um, there are reasons for that. I will get into them at another time. But for now, I am just going to leave you with all of this and tell you that you know, you're not in it alone. We're all in this together. And I will look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.